0: In today's talk, I will start talking about the practice of metta meditation in the greater context of the Buddha's teaching. And in the second part, I will talk about the near and far enemy of metta. As we all know, the Buddha's teaching is basically about to become free, to become liberated, meaning to become free from false views or incorrect ideas, to become free from all that which keeps us unhappy, which creates suffering. And and the path to this liberating freedom is very clearly outlined by the Buddha. As a guiding principle, we have the Noble Eightfold Path, which is a comprehensive teaching that includes all aspects of life. The Noble Eightfold Path covers the aspect of virtue And this deals with the way we live in this world. It concerns our actions, physical actions, it includes our speech, and it includes our livelihood, how we earn our livelihood. And the basic or the baseline of virtue is not to harm others and ourselves ourselves with our actions of body and speech. Then the second aspect of the Eightfold Path covers the training of the heart and the mind. So it says how we can develop and train our heart and mind in order to calm the mind and develop mindfulness. And then the third aspect of the Noble Path covers the aspect of wisdom. And this aspect aims at getting an understanding that is in accordance with reality. So it aims at realizing our false views, our incorrect concepts about ourselves And the world. We also can condense the Buddha's teachings to two principles namely, the principles of wisdom, understanding, and kindness and compassion. The second aspect, kindness and compassion, is embedded in the aspect of virtue, sila. The explicit statement in the precepts is not to hurt or harm others by our actions of body and speech, just as we have recited to refrain from killing beings, for example. But the implicit meaning is to be kind, is to be compassionate to ourselves and others. Then the principle of wisdom, understanding, this is delineated by right view and right intention which are the first two factors of the Eightfold Path. And this Eightfold Path is also called the Middle Path, meaning being in the middle of extreme views and opinions. The following simile, Illustrates these two principles of wisdom and kindness, compassion very nicely. A lamp produces simultaneously light and warmth. And so the middle path, the Eightfold Path, is illum- illuminated by wisdom, understanding, and it is nourished by kindness and compassion. So the light of the lamp stands for wisdom, for understanding, and the warmth stands for the kindness and the compassion. In the Tibetan Buddhist tradition I have come across another simile to illustrate that these two principles of wisdom compassion are necessary and so it's the simile of a bird as we all know a bird needs two wings to fly with only one wing, a bird cannot fly. And so in order to become fully liberated and free, we need the wing of wisdom and understanding, and we need the wing of kindness and compassion. So this means that awakening needs both these dim- dimensions of wisdom and and kindness and compassion. In the dimension of wisdom and understanding, we see things as they are, or we try to see things as they really are. So, on, in this dimension, we understand the reality on an absolute level. For example, we understand the cause and effect relationship of all processes happening in our body and mind. We also realize and understand that these are impersonal processes arising and passing away according to causes and conditions. And we understand that all these processes are empty of an inherently existing self or soul. But this is only one dimension of being in this world. We live in this world that is inhabited by different kinds of living beings, human beings, animals, and then there are other invisible beings, such as devas or ghosts, whatever. So if only this dimension of wisdom, understanding, were developed, then there would be a high risk of becoming kind of distant and cold-hearted. And this is why we need the other dimension of kindness, and compassion. This is equally important. On a relative level, on a conventional level, we have relationships with other people or with animals. We live together, we eat together, we go shopping together, we travel together, we share our joys and our sorrow. And all these relationships with other people, with other beings, they need a form of behavior that recognizes them as living beings. As living beings who also want to be happy. As living beings who do not want to suffer. And so, accordingly, We should behave in a way that we do not hurt or harm any other living beings. So, if we only would develop this dimension of kindness, love, or compassion, then this could result in actions that are not really helpful or beneficial because they are not informed by wisdom. To give you a little example, many years ago, when I lived at the forest monastery in Mubi, a bit outside of Yangon, a branch monastery of Sayadaw Ujanaka, one day I could observe how a snake leaped and got a frog. And the frog was half in the snake's mouth, like the head. Front part was already in the snake's mouth, but the part behind was still sticking out. And so I took a long stick and I tried of kind to... to to bother the snake so that it would drop the frog. You know, I had so much compassion for the frog. I didn't want the frog to die. So, you know, I was so fully absorbed and concerned with the frog and hitting the snake until I realized, hmm, there is aversion, aversion towards the snake that it is harming uh, the frog first I thought, of course, my pure metta, only that. But no. So there is where the wisdom part comes in. And so relating to these two dimensions of understanding wisdom on the one hand and compassion, kindness, unconditional love on the other side, it must really be informed by wisdom, because otherwise we very easily can fall prey to the so-called near and far enemy. In the Visuddhi Magga, this ancient commentary, we find an explanation of the near and far enemies of all the four Brahma Viharas, the four divine abidings. And for each of these four boundless states, you know, Metta, Karuna, Mudita, and Upekha, the near and far enemies are listed and explained. So, in the context of this Metta meditation retreat, I'm going to speak now about the near and far enemies of metta, of loving-kindness. So the near enemy of metta is attachment, craving, or lust. And the far enemy of metta is hatred, aversion, ill will. The near enemy, which is lust, attachment, is a bit more difficult to detect than the far enemy, which is aversion, hatred, ill-will. So attachment, craving or lust is called the near enemy of Metta because the attachment, or the craving, the lust, can disguise as meta. This type of worldly love, this is often accompanied by attachment, although people may think that they genuinely love the other person. But we must always bear in mind that the metta-love is an unconditional love. It's this kind of love that does not ask for anything in return. Or metta-love does not differentiate between different people, between beloved people or um, people one hates. Metta love does not set up any boundaries. And that is why meta and the other Brahma Viharas are called boundless states. No boundaries. So our capacity to truly love must be really boundless and limitless. In the Metta Sutta, the Discourse on Loving-Kindness, which we often recite in the evening, it says So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, should one love all living beings. In order to become free or to become liberated, We must weaken and finally eliminate those mental states, emotions, that create bondage and suffering. And we know from our Vipassana meditation practice or maybe from our general knowledge uh, of the Buddha's teaching that all forms of attachment or craving, desire, lust, that they cause suffering, dissatisfaction. All these forms of wanting, craving, and so on, they do not, li- la- they do not lead to lasting uh, happiness and peace. And this means, as long as attachment, desire, wanting is present, we will continue to suffer, feel dissatisfied. We will not become truly happy and peaceful. An Indian sage, the Swami Rama, he said Attachment creates bondage, while love bestows freedom. And when he uses the word love, of course, this is this kind of meta love what he talks about. Often people are not aware that their meta for a dear person is tainted by attachment. They think that it is really pure metta however when this dear person falls sick or if this person even dies then often grief or worry arises and this shows that the metta was tainted with attachment that it was not really pure that it was not really (coughs) unconditional Whenever I teach a metta meditation retreat, I hear in the interviews, especially, I hear in the interviews at the beginning of the retreat, um, meditators come and um, are happy and joyful that they got kind of that they could connect to this feeling of metta this unconditional love and benevolence and friendliness and kindness. And even for a dear person, they say, ah, it's pure metta, yes, yes. But then towards the end of a retreat, people come and say, oh, well, now, as the metta has become deeper and stronger and more powerful, I actually realize that my metta for the dear person was not that pure that there was actually some subtle attachment or even lust. When we say that the metta needs to be free from attachment, it does not mean to have kind of a cold or distant relationship to the person. Or it does not mean that we need to be indifferent in regard to the other person. Far from that. A non-attached or a detached meta love is full of warmth. It's full of care. It's really full of kindness and unconditional love. Again, in the words of this Swami Rama, when teachers speak of non-attachment, they are not teaching indifference, but they are teaching how to genuinely and selflessly love others. Non-attachment, properly understood, means love. Non-attachment and love are one and the same. Non-attachment gives freedom, but attachment brings bondage. I would say that metta, living with metta, based on metta, is a radical way of living our life, a radical way of relating to other people, to other living beings, and most importantly, of relating to ourselves. Could we imagine such a way of life? Or can we imagine relating to ourselves and others with meta, with meta love, can we imagine that this is possible? Well yes, it is possible. The more we try to be kind and friendly, the more we experience the positive outcome for ourselves. And this in turn gives us the incentive to even try more, to be kind and friendly, even if another person is nasty to us. Also, the Dalai Lama is convinced that it is possible. And he really embodies this kind of unconditional meta love At one time, he said, Practice kindness whenever it is possible. It is always possible. So, this, I would say, is a radical approach to life. It's also very pragmatic and it's actually simple. It is radically uncompromising especially in relation to people we do not like, to difficult persons or to enemies. So to maintain a benevolent attitude towards all beings at all times, this is an outlook of life that runs against the mainstream, it also runs against our deeply ingrained habits and thought patterns. Now to the far enemy of Metta. And the far enemy of Metta is Dosa. That's the Pali word. And Dosa means all forms of hatred, aversion, ill-will, and so on. And these emotions or mental states of aversion, ill-will, hatred, and so on, they are easy to detect. Often they are quite obvious because they also strongly then manifest in the body as bodily sensations. Basically, we all know how destructive aversion and hatred are. And still, we fall into these unwholesome reactions, thoughts, emotions, time and again. And then very often, we regret it. But it's the force of habit that keeps us imprisoned in this unwholesome, in these aversive reactions. So to get out of this prison, the practice of metta meditation is immensely helpful. By doing this practice, the way we are doing it here, we decondition the old habitual thought patterns and at the same time, we strengthen new beneficial, and wholesome thought patterns. We also can call the practice of metta meditation a reconditioning of the heart and the mind. It's a new conditioning of the heart and mind with beneficial and wholesome thought patterns and reactions. Here is another little example, a story, that shows that pure metta is always possible, even under the most trying conditions. The daughter of an American couple who lived in South Africa, so the whole family lived in South Africa, so the daughter was brutally murdered. The men who killed murdered the daughter were caught and imprisoned. However, the parents they pleaded for the amnesty of the men who murdered their daughter. And they even set up a charitable organization to help the residents of that particular township where their daughter was murdered. And they even employed the man who murdered their daughter in their charitable organization. Truly beautiful act. <clears throat> we also know that when Dosa is present, aversion, ill-will, hatred, and so on, then violence is never far. And metta, as the antidote to dosa, is a manifestation of non-violence. Metta never expresses any forms of violence, neither to oneself nor to others. As we have already uh, said, metta is not only the absence of hatred, ill will or aversion, but metta is actually an active manifestation of kindness, of friendliness, of benevolence, A Protestant minister in Switzerland, he, call, he called love this kind of meta love. It's a treasure of non, a treasure of active nonviolence. And for me, this active aspect of meta is very important, because really meta must be acted out, it must be lived, it must be embodied. Metta is not only a nice mental state that we cultivate and strengthen in the course of a retreat, of a metta meditation retreat, or that we might cultivate uh, in the morning for half an hour on our cushion at home. Metta, this quality of the heart and the mind, really it must be put into action. It must be acted out. Metta must become the basis from which all our actions of body and speech come. And actually, this is a message that we can find in all religions and spiritual traditions. You know, be it the Buddha, or Jesus, or Mohammed, or Guru Nanak, the founder of Sikhism, they all stressed the importance of this kind of unconditional love, of Metta. We probably all know um, the sentence of Jesus: Love thy neighbor as yourself. So, Metta is radic- radically. Uncompromising not only in its radical attitude of unconditional love but also in its active manifestation of this unconditional love. Metta is a call to take a stand and act. And this radical attitude is Asked for from all that follow a religious teaching. The Buddha was adamant when he said that we should give up all forms of dosa, all forms of hatred, anger, ill will, irritation, and so on. In the Dhammapada, we find this famous verse from the Buddha Hatred never ceases by hatred by love alone it will cease this is an eternal law Hatred never ceases by hatred by love alone it will cease this is an eternal law So love, in the sense of metal love, unconditional love, is not only an an essential ingredient of social harmony, but it is also an essential ingredient to make progress on the path to liberation. As I had said in the beginning, both wisdom and Compassion, kindness must be developed. A bird cannot fly with only one wing. And again, to quote Swami Rama, he said, You should do your duty in the world with love, and that alone will contribute significantly to your progress on the path of enlightenment. And Teresa of Lisieux, a French saint, she was famous for her great love. And she had said, What matters in life is not great deeds, but great love. Teresa of Lisieux lived and taught a spirituality of attending to everyone, to everything, with great love. She believed that we should have a childlike focus and be totally attentive to whatever is present, to whatever we are doing. Teresa's spirituality was one of doing the ordinary, doing it with extraordinary love. Metta, or love, heals and it contributes to peace, whereas anger and aversion. They cause suffering and they leave open wounds. And these open wounds are so difficult to heal and often they fester for a long, long time. Hatred only creates more hatred and in this way an endless cycle of hostile and cruel actions take place. For example, we also see this dynamic with the ethnic group of the Rohingyas who live in the north of Burma on the border to Bangladesh. Two, about two years ago, many hundred thousands of them fled to Bangladesh, where they still live in huge refugee camps under the most difficult conditions. Well I don't want to go further into this uh, topic in this context. But at that time I found an article which was very heartening. It was a Burmese Catholic cardinal who sent out an appeal to everyone saying, Please heal, do not wound. Let us work together to end violence and terror in our country and to build a Myanmar where every man, woman, and child of every race and religion born on Myanmar soil is recognized both as our fellow citizen, and as our brother and sister in humanity. Peace with justice is possible. 2017 has been declared a year of peace by the Catholic Church. Let us continue the pilgrimage to peace, not return to war. So his meta-attitude is clear and unmistaken. With an open heart, this Catholic Burmese Cardinal embraces everybody of every race, of every religion. There is no discrimination or exclusion. The way to peace is made up of steps of metta. We can say metta is a pilgrimage to peace. To peace within, within ourselves and to peace without, peace out in the world. So as a summary in regard to the near and far enemy of metta, the far enemy of metta is easier to recognize because anger, aversion, ill will, hatred are more easily uh, detectable in ourselves. The near enemy of metta is often not recognized as, as such because attachment, wanting, or lust they may disguise as friendliness and love. But in both cases, when the near or the far enemy is present, the outcome is worry, suffering, disappointment, or grief. <clears throat> So one way to judge whether or not our metta is genuine and pure it is to notice whether there is any disappointment or worry or stress or suffering arising. If the answer is yes, then it is not pure genuine metta. When the answer is no, then we can conclude that our metta is pure and genuine. And then we experience a heart full of metta. It feels happy, feels uh, peaceful, calm or buoyant. Another way to make sure or another way to judge whether or not our meta is pure is to see if there is even the slightest intention to hurt or to harm be that to hurt physically or emotionally because as we know meta is this pure wish for the other well-being and happiness. So our capacity to embrace all living beings with the same benevolent and loving attitude must be strong, must be boundless and limitless. And then the metta becomes powerful and then it can have far-reaching effects. Here comes another little illustration a story. Again, this Indian sage, Swami Rama, at one time he took rest in a small cave at the foot of the Himalayas. And when he was inside the cave, he actually discovered that there were three little tiger cubs in the cave. And He described the situation like this. For a few minutes, I lay there petting them, the little tiger cubs. When I sat up, there was their mother standing at the entrance to the cave. First, I feared that she would rush in and attack me. But then a strong feeling came from within, I thought, I have no intention to hurt these cubs. If the mother tiger leaves the entrance of the cave, then I will go out. So I picked up my blanket and pot of water. The mother tiger backed off from the entrance, and so I went out. When I had gone about 15 yards from the entrance, the mother tiger calmly went in to join her babies. In our practice of metta meditation, we must be attentive, we must be vigilant so that we do not fall prey, to the near and far enemies. And when we do fall prey to the near and far enemies, we simply acknowledge it and then we return to the cultivation of loving kindness. Yesterday, Ayaviranyani pointed out the difference between metta meditation. And we passed on a meditation, and she also talked about how to deal with mental states or emotion, emotions, hindrances when they arise in the course of our meta meditation practice. And because it is so important to know this, I just mentioned it briefly again. So in the context of metta meditation, there is no need to attend to the near and far enemies, which means there is no need to be really mindful of the attachment that has arisen or to be mindful of the aversion that uh, has arisen. As we know, to be really mindful of anger or aversion or whatever there is to, uh, to be aware of it, to know it, to feel it, to uh, trying to understand it. This is the domain of Vipassana meditation. So the way to deal with near and far enemy, anger, attachment, and so on, in the metta meditation is they arise. We don't push it away, we, but we acknowledge it, just, ah, anger has arisen, or ah, there is attachment. So we acknowledge it, but then we do not need to do anything, anything further with it. We simply turn our attention back to the metta, Continue the cultivation of loving-kindness and, you know, whatever aversion or uh, desire there is, if we do not pay further attention to it, it will dissolve again. <clears throat> As we are doing the metta meditation practice, We really want to cultivate this quality of loving kindness, benevolence, unconditional love, and we want to strengthen it. And that's why this practice just focuses on that again and again and again and again. As I said in the beginning, it's like trying or it is like setting up a new habit a new conditioning to guide the mind into that possibility of being friendly of being kind so by strengthening the meta aspect the kindness the friendliness and so on the opposite will be weakened and as we know the opposite of metta is anger, aversion, ill will, all forms of dosa. So this is how the metta practice works. By strengthening this quality then its opposite becomes weaker. So then the stronger the metta becomes the more like figuratively the more space it occupies in our heart, in our mind, the less space there is for aversion ill will. And so then this will dominate and so it's much more difficult for aversion to arise and when it arises it may not be as strong, it may not last as long as it normally uh, would have. And so this is happening due to this reconditioning of the heart and the mind. And in modern psychology they call it cognitive restructuring. And this cognitive restructuring is greatly needed in today's world. While I assume that it was also greatly needed at the time of the Buddha or at the time of Jesus because otherwise these great sages would not have emphasized the importance of metta or love to the extent they did. This quality of Metta, of loving kindness, of unconditional love. You know, it's embedded in everybody's heart and mind. But unfortunately, it is covered by the kilesas, by the near and far enemies. It is covered by many uh, veils. And so the work we do with the metta medip- metta meditation practice is to uncover metta unconditional love and this is something we must do it's a practice we must engage in it's really something that we must put into practice learning something Developing something. You know, at school we learn many things, but um, also quite a number of unimportant things or even uh, futile things. I remember. Uh, when I went to school when we had to calculate sinus curves and draw them and I was never <laughs> interested in that and I and others in the class as well so we asked our math teacher why do we need to learn this why is this so important and he would say well you will need it in your life it's really important but Throughout all these years since then, you know to get dressed to do shopping, um, to give a Dhamma talk, I don't need a sinus curve, <laughs> or you know to memorize the year when, for example, Mozart was born um, you know in an attack of great greed or aversion. It's not so helpful to know the year when Mozart was born. A Sufi sage, an old woman living in Agra, India, uh, when she was 93 years old, she said the people of the world have learned how to fill up earthen bowls with grains and coins. But no one knows how to fill the bowl of the heart. So, meaning, the people of the world, you know, they have learned how to fill the bowls with grains and coins, so foodstuff and money, wealth. But to fill the ball of the heart, like to fill it with love, with unconditional love. Also nowadays, people know how to flood the world with foodstuff, with material things. People know how to make money, they know how to make love. But many people do not know how to fill the heart with meta love with kindness. This is why it is so heartening to see all of you here to know that you are actually eager to cultivate a loving, a friendly, a benevolent heart and mind. You know, that... You are eager to really fill the ball ball of the heart with this kind of unconditional love, with meta love. And so, with your practice, you will definitely make a difference in the world. Your meta practice will benefit yourself by becoming more open hearted. And loving towards yourself and towards others. And your metta, your metta practice, will also greatly benefit the world around you. That is, all the people and all the living beings that you either meet or come in contact with. And even those far away that you have never seen or met So with your practice, like ripples in a pond, your kindness and your caring attitude will make a tangible difference in people's life and it will affect many, many living beings. I thank you for your kind attention.